We are live. How is everyone? Hi. So, Amy, I'm drinking my Balvenie right here. A nice Balvenie. Can you hear me? Can she hear me? She can hear you, but she, you, she oh, can't. Okay. That's okay. okay. Yeah. Amy, what did, Amy Goldschlager asked what we are drinking. So, we are telling her. Yes. I'm drinking a Founders Underground, Underground Mountain Brown. It's an imperial brown ale brewed with Sumatra coffee aged in bourbon barrels. It's quite good. 11.9%. Wow. I'm drinking Belveni. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amy yeah. says she loves Belveni. Yeah, I can see her. Yeah. And I'm fanning myself. I just tweeted this. If you see me fanning myself, I don't have a temperature. I'm just hot because my, my apartment is still heated. <clears throat> I can't turn the heat off. I'm hot as hell. <laughs> you know? My fan doesn't reach all the way from my bedroom to here. And the only outlet that my fan's in and is, has my air filter in. So it's either my air, fil air filter or my fan. And right now, I, I guess I could turn the air filter off and bring the fan over. But what the heck? In the meantime, I'm using a fan. So that's what's going on here. Oh, old school. That's, you know, that works. Right. And it, it, it makes you look like, like a movie star. You have the wind blowing your hair. Yeah, yeah. So far, I'm okay. I need one hand for this and one hand for my liquor. Teal Glenn says, hi there, scary folks. Are we that scary? <laughs> can you guys see? I can see that. Can they see? Daniel, can you see the... I cannot see the. Oh, okay. So yeah, on the right, on the right-hand side, Daniel, if you click comments, you should be able to oh, see. I, that. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, he's on an iPad. It might be different. Oh. For those who are tuning in now, we're we're probably not going to officially start until ten after seven. We're just kind of hanging out um, right now. Wait, so, Eugene, uh, what are you having for dinner? What are you making? Is there a porg behind mm -hmm. Matt? Eugene wants to know. It's what? not a porg. <laughs> this is a. Uh, this is cousin Beaver. Oh, I remember porks. This is this is a blue heron. This is uh, a turn from my Lorraine. Oh boy! And then this is uh, Connie the Condor. <laughs> They're all here for the reading. So and here's my um my frog purse or my toad purse. It was a gift. It's a giant tick. <laughs> no, it's actually a poor stuff stuffless stuff. No stuffing toad. Lacking stuffing. It's only the half, top front half of the toad. What was that, Daniel, that you had there? It was a little mummy. A mummy? Nice. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, there's no it's possible that, oh, here's Jack. Jack the Jerk might show up. He's looking at me. He knows something's going on. His eyes are wide open. And he's, his big, yellow, beautiful eyes are, are open. And he's checking things out. <laughs> See, he wonders who I'm talking to, I think. <laughs> when Jack the Jerk reads, that's the banner that I'm going to put out. Hey, darling. Jack. Come on. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes. Come on, Jack. Come on. Here he is. Come on. Come this way. No, he's going that way. He'll lie next to me, probably. Are you going to come uh, up? We have tail on camera. <laughs> Who's Nancy? Jack finally came to say hello to me oh, last I'm night. Here's Jack. He's there's his tail. You can see Jack's tail. Mm, I do. Yeah. What are you doing? Stop it. Uh oh. He's doing bad uh -oh. things. He's ripping my <laughs> notes. Like notes. Stop it. The cat ate my manuscript. <laughs> Jack, please don't. He's gonna knock over all my notebooks with my spreadsheet. Please don't do that. Come here. Is he gonna, Jack? 
If you want to know why Ellen Datlow hasn't responded to your submission, that's why. Yeah, they're not submitting my spreadsheets for paying people. Uh, Linda Addison says she's going to make a gin and tonic as she would have at KGB. Cheers. Good. Hi, Linda. Hello. Cheers, Linda. And Nick says, Nicholas Calvin says, I'm so glad I don't have to save seats for anyone tonight. LOL. True. <laughs> All right. We have 20, 20 viewers right now, according to my... Uh, and... Robert oh, yeah. will be showing up eventually. What's where, that? Where did Robert go? Yeah, where is Robert? Because he's reading first. Oh, Steve Berman is here. Hello, Steve. Hi, Steve. This is fun. We should do this all the time. This is where we can have people all over the country. I know. This is fun. Maybe, maybe, well, oh, if it works. Hey, right. Terry's here. Hi, Gay. Hi, Gay. Look at all the nice people who usually can't make it, says Amy Goldschlager. Yeah, exactly. This is a way to get people who to read from around the country who we can't get. Maybe we could do this in addition. Oh, as if I want to run two readings. Yeah, I, I was thinking about doing some kind of informal mm, video podcast, but I don't know if I have time. But... Linda and I were going to be rooming together at StokerCon, but I guess we're not. Uh oh! Hey, uh oh! Jackson, oh so that's it. Don't get readings canceled. Knocks <laughs> over my drink. Get off. Get off, Jack. Sophie, please, both of you, stop it. Jack. Denise Johnson says hi from Arizona. Hello, Denise. Hi, Jack, come here. Sophie, they're both, they're next to each other, which means it could be a disaster. <laughs> Sophie, come here. Come on, Sophie, get off there. They're both behind my computer on the desk. 26 uh, viewers, that's pretty good. We're just waiting for Robert. Where are you, Robert? Robert, what happened to Robert? Someone check. I can't check email, but well, um, I turned my email off. So I, I, I just checked. He's he didn't respond yet, but uh, come here. He yeah. was. Well, for, for those people just tuning in, we're we're gonna hang out uh, till about seven ten. To so uh, if you want to go get a drink or do something else before we start, but so we're gonna start the reading around seven ten. When I say please, don't, that wasn't to you, audience. That was to um, Sophie and Jack. <laughs> Sophie has gone away, so Jack is not gonna at least chase her right now. But God knows what else I'll do. Beautiful Joe says, break a leg, Daniel. Thank you. Hi to everyone. I can't see the name, so hi to everyone who's there. Jordan Smith says, I think this is the first time I've had a seat at KGB. Yeah, this is the first time I'm doing KGB without pants. So, you know, same, <laughs> same boat. Yeah. I was waiting for someone to make that joke. Ooh. Right. I'm actually wearing pants. But I am I am in my slippers though. Steve, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Where did this come from? The maternal side. I'm sorry. What's the context? I'm missing the context. Wait, what? Steve Berman said I knew Ellen had a maternal side, but I don't understand. Oh, maybe something with the cats. I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know. It it was a minute ago with a conversation. Oh well. Left the building. At home camera equal com. Yeah, only if the cats start doing things. They're both out of the room right now, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had to take my alcohol. I had to take, I had a nice bottle of, um, I have two bottles of bison, bison grass vodka. Yeah. Um, and one I had in the freezer, but I had to take it out so I could make room for food. So now they're both in the fridge. And maybe afterwards, after I finish <clears throat> my Belvenny, maybe I'll have some vodka. Sounds um, good. I'm not, I'm not I hate them. I hate Jack the Jerk as my nemesis. <laughs> Jack, 
the jerk. <laughs> Jack the jerk is out. He's not. He's left the room, literally. Yeah, Let's he's left the building. I hope he's Everyone not. has to drink when Ellen says Jack the jerk and Matt. Right. <laughs> and when, the, when the banner goes up, everyone has to drink. <laughs> um, Robert, where are you? He was. He oh, was I didn't know that. Daniel, wait a minute. You went to SUNY at Albany? Yeah. Did I know that? Did we talk about that? I, I think we've talked about it and then forgotten about it and then like re remembered together. And Lucas saying, okay, I didn't remember that. What year did you go? Did you graduate? I graduated in 92. Oh, God. Okay. I was there in 71. <laughs> yeah, I was I was born in 70. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like a but yeah, they um they have a reading series. Um they do? Let's check in with Albany. Um there's David in David Oh David Rivera. He says I need a Baltica. Yeah, you know, you want some like medium to to crappy lager, then you'd be just the same. Someone said, "Not sure that's true." What are you responding to, Carol? But I'm not sure what she's responding to or who. But it doesn't matter. Sometimes you know, it's like you don't the random, <laughs> the random. Yeah, there's actually so between the time that we speak and then the time that it goes live on YouTube, there may be okay. up to a 30 second delay. Oh, so it, it could be the comment is not relevant. Oh, to okay. oh, Bombay, okay, is what you yeah. Hi, Greg and Greg Green in Nashville. Hi, Chris Dykeman. Oh my god, you're making homemade french fries, send them over. I think I once made homemade french fries but it's too much work i'd rather buy them <laughs> okay uh yeah so we're we're just waiting for uh robert well we did tell him we weren't going to start for a few minutes so maybe that's why he went out away i don't know i told him to be on mm. well we can always start with daniel <laughs> no i'm sure robert will be here he'll be back all right, I'm gonna just step away from camera really super quick in case. Uh, okay, all right. Put me on deck, then I'll have a bathroom break okay. and be ready to go. Okay. <laughs> go on. Sounds good. Uh, so, for those who, how many people are watching now? Uh, Twenty-nine. Nice. Hi, everybody. So hello, everyone. Oh, we have more comments. Let's see what everyone's saying. Devin Poor. Hello, Devin. I didn't get Devin's thing. Where did? Oh, he just came in. Okay, yeah. Now it's too, now, am I getting chills? Now I'm chilly. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm so paranoid. You I know. know I'm in a perfect know. age group for this. And I've been running around for two weeks going to go to supermarket shopping. So I keep feeling my head, no temperature. But I'm still nervous. <laughs> yeah, no line for the bathroom. Yeah, Eugene Myers says no line for the bathroom. That's nice. Well, you know, how many do we usually have? We have a very it's totally varied. Like you mean in the in the in the audience? It can get yeah. really crowded. So uh, it's a very hard to estimate because the bar is pretty small. Yeah. But I don't know. Average I would say is probably around 30 to 40, but then it can go up like if it's really crowded, I don't know, 80 more or more. I don't know. I really can't. It's I, hard to estimate. The place people have overflowed into the hallway Olivia. and down the stairs. Hey, Olivia's here. Oh, hello, Olivia. Oh, Teresa DeLucci. Hello, Teresa. She's my neighbor. She's upstairs. <laughs> I know. We haven't seen each other because we're quarantined. Mm -hmm. You should 
quarantine together. We maybe. wave at each other outside the fire escape. Uh, Actually, we haven't done that yet, but we should. Yeah, you can sing to each other. That's right. Like the Italians. Have you seen that? Those videos where they're all singing on the screen? Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, by the way, yes. Um, yes, please. If We would love, Carol Geisender just said, um, I just figured out how to send some money to KGB via Venmo. Yes, if you- oh, I'll, I'll be mentioning that, Carol, on how to do that. We're gonna start at um, 7, 10, and uh, I'll, I'll let everyone know if they wanna support the bar, how to do that. Eugene, we miss you too. I miss you. Oh, hello, Lisanne. Hi there. Yeah, David Rivera says, room is getting packed, standing room only. That's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, wait, sorry. Sorry, Daniel, I, I didn't see you pop back oh, on. So no to Robert? I was just trying to get someone to uh, stand outside the window and lean on the horn for that KGB uh, authentic feel. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Harry. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm getting a little nervous at, uh, that Robert isn't here. What, 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 do we, what do we do? Oh, wait, here is. What, is he coming in? Robert says, what's going on? Hold on. Activate. I'm backstage. Activate. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. He doesn't get activated, does he? We don't have a we oh Eugene, we haven't had a bookseller for a while. Um however, um word is a word said that they would give ten percent discount for people who bought books from them. But I don't know if that's happening now. But that's what's gonna what was gonna happen in the future. So if that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi Dave Surface. So what did you are you activating him or what's going on? Um trouble getting in? Yeah, so he says it's back. He's quote unquote backstage. I don't know. Oh wait. So I don't know what he specifically means by that. Um, backstage was where we were before you went live. So I'm wondering maybe, <laughs> maybe because we went live, we can't add someone when we're live. That's the only non-technical thing I could think of. Well, I don't want to end the broadcast because that that would then bump everyone off. So <laughs> let's see if we can get him to rejoin. Actually, let me let me see if I can. Email him one more time. Technical support live. Devin said he's heard you sing. Who? Devin Poor has heard you sing because Teresa was saying you probably would read, sing in excess. <laughs> oh, probably at a, um, a karaoke. Mm. All right, I just resent Robert the link. Okay, let's keep our fingers Robert crossed. Robert is waiting for you to activate. He is backstage. Okay. Rick is here. Hi, oh, Rick. Rick Hi, Rick. Oh, wherever I am, wherever you are. Hello. You're here. I don't know. How did you manage to get in? I'm so happy you did this. He figured it out or else someone figured it out for him. That's great. So is Robert getting in? I just resent him the link. Okay. So, uh, fingers crossed, everybody. Fingers crossed. I really don't want to um, have to disconnect the... Uh, I know. All right. Sorry for the technical difficulties. This is the very first time we've been doing. Oh, there he is. Where? It worked. Oh, hey. 
I've I've been sitting here obviously for half an hour trying to get in. My apologies. You were wandering around your apartment, stumbling drunk, and then you're like, "Oh shit, I have a reading tonight." <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just don't kidding. tell them that. I now I'm yeah. going to turn my phone off. Okay. So I don't get any more panicked. Amy, you saw cats. What did you see? So the, Carrie is asking Amy, did she recover from cats yet? <laughs> Wait a minute. Where did you see it? You saw the movie? I'm waiting for it to come onto Netflix. Did you see the Seth Rogen live tweets of cats while he was high? Um, yeah. That was pretty funny. I don't think so. But. Oh, okay. All right, we got Rob back. All right. So we have 40 viewers and it's 7-Eleven. So should we yes, start? We'll start. Okay. So, um, everyone, welcome. So, uh, if this is your first time here, and Ellen is not contagious, <laughs> don't worry. Just stay six feet away from your computer; you'll be fine. Um, uh, so, welcome to, this is fantastic fiction at KGB. Um, my name is Matthew Kressel. And I'm going to use the the, uh, the fun banners here. There we go. Um, hang on. What are you doing? Yay. Okay. So uh, fantastic fiction at KGB. Um, oh. Ellen, Ellen and I, Ellen Datlow and I have Stop. hosted here. Steve, okay. Herman has said Lethic Press is offering a 55% discount on Robert's book. Use coupon code 55%. All right. Okay. Ellen, <laughs> Ellen I'm going to mute you in a second. <laughs> All right. Please, let me. Steve, wait until the. This is what it's like in person. You think it's it's because it's you think it's technical. <laughs> no, it's what it's like if you come to the reading. <laughs> he edits me while I give the announcements. All right. So here we go. KGB, uh, fantastic fiction at KGB Bar, which is closed, I'll get to that, um, is, a, is a monthly reading series. It, um, it's a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan. It's hosted by myself and Ellen Datlow. Uh, a little history of the, of the series, Terry Bisson and Alice K. Turner uh, started the series in the late 90s and they were attempting to bring together mainstream writers with writers of speculative fiction <laughs> in order to show in Alice Turner's words that at a certain level they were plowing exactly the same field. In the spring of 2000, editor Ellen Datlow took over for Alice K. Turner and in August 2002, Gavin J. Grant, who's a publisher of Small Beer Press, uh, stepped in for Terry Bisson when Terry moved to California and uh, author Matt Kressel, that's me, stepped in for Gavin in April 2008. When uh, they moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. Yeah, so it was too far for them to come uh, to the series every month. Uh, so we have a website. Uh, let's get the banner. Where's the banner? Um, fantastic Fiction. Here we go. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, a website. It's kgbfantasticfiction.org, and we have a mailing list. So if even if you're um, – so, okay. Obviously, we're not at the bar tonight, but even if you – uh, can't come to the bar ever. We have a podcast, so so we uh, we record every episode, uh, every reading, and we um, we put it on a podcast. So if you if you go to the if you go to the website, my wife just shut the light off behind me. If you go to the website kgbfantasticfiction.org, you can subscribe to our mailing list, and then we also have podcasts that you can um, 
listened to going back to, I believe it's 2014. So we have six years of podcasts of readings. So it's, you know, they're live readings. So you hear like, you know, uh, police sirens going, you know, um, cheerleaders performing on the street, elephants stomping upstairs. Outside rehearsing. Yeah, every, everything. Uh, so um, the KGB bar, uh, well, I'll get to this in a minute, but, you know, uh, I think you've probably heard by now that New York City is pretty much shut down. Uh, the KGB bar is a, is a Soviet-themed bar on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, it used to serve as a speakeasy-style meeting place for Ukrainian socialists uh, during the McCarthy period. Um, before uh, the virus shut down the city, the bar was host to liter literary events almost every night of the month. Uh, you can check out their website, kgbbar.com. Uh, in the 20 years of hosting our series, Fantastic Fiction, the KGB Bar never once, never charged a cover. It's always free. You come, you listen to great fiction, you leave, you don't pay a penny. Uh, we usually ask that the audience buy a drink, hard or soft, to support the bar, but since the bar is closed, uh, all bars and restaurants are closed, we are asking our viewers if they wish to support the bar by sending payments to them through Venmo. Venmo is an online payment service similar to PayPal if you're not familiar with it. If you so choose, you can send a tip to the KGB bar by searching for KGB bar uh, on Venmo or Dennis Wojcik, and I'll spell that for you, D-E-N-I-S-W-O-Y-C-H-U-K. So just basically just search KGB bar on Venmo and, and it'll come up. And you can send them um, whatever you'd like, maybe the cost of a, of a drink or two. Yeah. And the owner, the owner says, uh, Dennis says that he promises to give a, a percentage of, of the money to his bartenders as well. So uh, we hope you'll do that for us. Um, so yeah, so this is our very first live stream. Uh, as I said, we have a podcast uh, which gets very minor editing, and then we put it up on our website. But this is the first time we're ever doing it live. Um, here in New York City, everything is mostly shut down. Um, there's a few stubborn folks ignoring that warning and going about business as usual to the detriment of everyone else. Um, but uh, there's talk that Mayor de Blasio may soon issue a shelter-in-place order. So, Which is actually what we're doing already, mostly. Yeah, so most people are doing that. Uh, any, anyway, even... Um, even before the city was locked down the way it is now, uh, last week, Ellen and I uh, decided to cancel the in-person uh, reading for the safety of everyone. Um, but we didn't want to disappoint our guests and our regular audience, uh, so we thought it, was, it would be a good idea to try to do a live stream of the readings you know, over the internet. Um, so uh, this is our first time doing this. So, you know, please excuse any hiccups, technical or from, from the beer I'm drinking. Uh, I right? can't be KGB without a few drinks. Um, anyway, um, I'm almost... Oh, did you see Look at Carol's note. What did Carol say? I learned that Venmo payments apparently only work for mobile devices, not on Venmo.com. Uh, that is true. So um, if people want to find another method to send to the bar, um, go to KGB... Uh, fantasticfiction.org and uh, contact us. There's an email address there and uh, we'll figure out another way to, to uh, get them the money. Um, so before we introduce our, uh, our first reader, our readers tonight, I uh, just want to tell you uh, briefly about our upcoming guests. Um, 
obviously because of the, the situation, a lot of this is up in the air uh, since we, we don't know what the future is uh, going to bring. Uh, if the KGB bar does remain closed and the city remains closed, uh, and if the guests are open to it, uh, we would we would do another live stream next month. So again, this is all tentative. Uh, next month, April 15th, Michael Sisko and Clay McLeod Chapman. Uh, May 20th, Leanna Renee Heber and Alana C. Myers. June 17th, N.K. Jemison and Kenneth Schneier. July 15th, Mike Allen and Benjamin Rosenbaum. August 19th, Michael Liebling and our favorite guest, TBA. Uh, <laughs> September 16th, Livia Llewellyn, who I saw was on the scroll before, and Craig L. Gidney. And October 21st, Laird Barron and TBA is going to be reading again. Uh, so- um, well, That was tentative Joe Hill, I think. Tentative Joe Hill, but we can't, we can't say that. You just said that on a live stream. Now everyone's gonna show up. Um, <laughs> We don't we didn't commit yet, so we don't we don't. Know. Um, so um, there, this is our, our opportunity. We thought to engage people a little bit because we can't really hear you. We can see your your chat messages, so we thought it'd be interesting to do a little Q and A. So uh, we hope you will uh, stick around, and uh, after the readings. Uh, so uh, Robert Levy is going to read first, then we're going to take a five-minute break and then uh, come back, and then Daniel Brown is going to read. And then after Daniel reads, we're going to do a, a, a short Q&A. And, &A. and um, yeah, so we hope you'll stick around for that. So um, let's do Carol, – Carol says that um, she got the Venmo app to work. Great. <coughs> okay. So – Robert is going to be our first reader. And let me just get everything set up here. Okay. Robert, Robert Levy's novel, The Glittering World, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and the Shirley Jackson Award, while shorter work has appeared in Black Static, Shadows and Tall Trees, The Dark, the best horror of the year, the year's best gay speculative fiction, and more. Anais Nin and the Grand Guignol. Did I pronounce that correctly? No, you did it wrong. Guignol. It works for me, Matt. Guignol. Guignol. Thank you. Remember? Yes. Guignol. <laughs> A speculative novella written in the style of the literary icon's legendary diaries was released in October by Leith Press. Here's Robert Levy. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, thanks to Matt and Ellen for having me. Thanks to Daniel for reading with me. Uh, lovely people all. I'm really excited to be doing this uh, under unfortunate circumstances, but uh, life goes on as best we can. So um, here I am. I'll try to set this up really quickly. I'm going to be reading from my novella, Anais Nin at the Grand Guignol, which uh, unexpectedly is about Anais Nin at the Grand Guignol. And uh, if you don't know who Anais Nin is, she's a, a, a uh, feminist uh, icon, a, well known for her erotic fiction, but perhaps best known for her uh, sex-tinged diaries. And this is, uh, as Matt said in his introduction, a, uh, a piece that's written in the style of those diaries. Um, just to quickly set this up, uh, this takes place after her uh, 
love triangle with the author Henry Miller and his dancer wife June has fallen apart. Uh, that's was sort of uh, famously depicted in a 1990 movie by Philip Kaufman called Henry and June uh, that was based on her diaries. So it's after that happens and before her next uh, her next phase, which is a, a, an exploration of her incestuous relationship with her father. So this is kind of a bridge piece between those two moments in her life, uh, during which she is still married to her husband, Hugo. So in this novella, she uh, forms a new love triangle that is far darker between a uh, actress, the Grand Dame of the Grand Guignol Theater, uh, who's named Maxa, and the Grand Guignol is a theater that is, uh, uh, existed in, in Paris for 60 years and was a theater of virtue and vice. And um, uh, they would perform very macabre uh, horror scenarios uh, as well as very sexual ones. Um, so Moxa is the grand dame of the Grand Guignol and she's fallen into a relationship with her while Moxa is under the sway of a mysterious stranger. Anais goes to a masquerade and has a dalliance with a masked man who she realizes uh, is this stranger. And that night she has a dream. And that is the piece I'll be reading tonight. I wake in the night and reach for Hugo, only to find the space beside me empty. And so I step out of bed and throw on a negligee. The dog's fast asleep before the cindering hearth as I slip out of the room and down the stairs in darkness. In the strange crepuscular shine through the windows, I make my way to the front door, which I discover has been left open. I cross the threshold, the air heady with the scent of night flowers as I enter the garden, the grass beneath my bare feet slicked with cool dew. I realize now that I am dreaming and stare back at the house and its wide face, its 11 shutters closed to the evening like slumbering eyelids. All save the center shutter, which is thrown wide, the glass of its window visible in the moon's mellow glow. The sealed room has been opened. The soft crunch of wet leaves and I turn. There's a slight figure adjacent to the elm tree past the drive and the far side of the fountain, a crouched and half-hidden shape, barely perceptible in the blue moonlight, but there nevertheless, not 10 yards away. I am too scared to move any closer, and yet I know I must puzzle out whatever is happening, that the answer will comprise the most important truth I have ever known. Maxa, I whisper, Perhaps she has decided to pay me a visit after all, here in this twilight realm. Maxa, is that you? The figure shifts behind the tree so that it is hidden, and I force myself forward. One foot before the next, it takes all my courage to make the slow and inexorable walk to the tree and the fleeting shape beyond. When I finally reach the elm, I travel counterclockwise around its formidable trunk, its branches swollen and dripping with moisture. There is no one here any longer, and only now do I realize I'm holding my breath. I exhale a cloud of perfumed smoke and lean against the rough bark, my relief laced with a disturbing sense of unease, 
the source of which I cannot place. I close my eyes and listen to the trill of a nightingale chirruping in the heavy leafage above. Have you forgotten me so soon? The stranger's molasses voice shocks me to attention. A melodic baritone spoken everywhere at once, as if sung by a midnight choir of the damned. I attempt to run, but my spine is adhered to the bark, fixed to the elm's rough trunk like a fly drowning in amber. My hands stick to the tree as well, and I thrash and struggle as I try to free myself. Soon, however, I am immobilized altogether. Come. The invisible fiend whispers into the shell of my ear, the disembodied word seductive, ravenous. There is so much more I want to show you. The heavy branches quiver and bend, and the elms dense and unseasonable greenery ripples and descends, draping me in a foliate shroud. I am forced against the meat of the tree, pressed into its bark as if into wax. The pressure increases and I flail, my gaze rearing up toward the house and the darkening sky beyond. At the open shutter, I see the slight figure once more. This time, she stands in the window of the sealed room, her small face staring down at me as I struggle against the tree. It is myself. Or rather, my younger self, maybe nine years old, my tiny hands pressed to the glass and following the proceedings below with an inscrutable interest. Behind my younger self is my father, Joaquin, who looks down upon me as well, his gaze conveying a similar stony fascination. He stands very close to her, too close, his large hands on her shoulders, body pressed against her back the way the tree is fixed to mine. He is invading her just the same, invading me. Rather than being crushed against the tree's unwavering mass, I begin to pass into it. My flesh melts against and inside its expanding trunk until the tree has swallowed me. Once absorbed, I am released and drop down onto a ground of coarse sand. My racing heart begins to slow and I get to my feet alone inside a humid and dimly lit cavern. The wet surfaces are made of pocked shale, or perhaps some kind of coral. The distant echo of crashing waves reverberating, reverberating against the walls. I shuffle my way toward a slit of light cast upon the far side of the cave and suck in my breath as I wriggle through the narrow egress. At once, a vast sheet of churning gray light blinds me. After a few moments, my eyes adjust, and I discover I am perched atop a carved pillar of uneven stone. The slab rises from the bed of a flooded grotto, the puckered bowl of craggy earth coated in gauzy mist and molded from an eroded cliff face over what must be untold millennia. There are more pillars on the shore around me in a rough approximation of a circle, reminiscent of the pylons of an abandoned dock. A large wave crashes over the enclosure. The impact sprang upward in an angry fan before spilling out and away, back to the rocky shore and the sea beyond. 
Above the smell of the salted sea is another scent, that of incense, and I become lightheaded with the holy aroma of sacred space. Another crash and I throw my arm over my face to shield myself from the empty water. The tide recedes once more, and when I steady myself again, I find I am no longer alone. Roosted upon the other pillars are a collection of unmoving figures. Two or three dozen of them, women mostly, though there is a man or two scattered among them. Of varying ages and shapes, every one of them bound with their hands, clasped behind their backs, all naked and frozen in the formal poses of classical statuary. They are all blindfolded, eyes obscured, with the same tattered material used to bind their hands, the dirty cloth tied in crude knots. One of them is standing while another is seated, a third crouched, yet another curled onto her side in a fetal position. All are motionless. The roar of the sea, the screeching of famished gulls wheeling overhead, and the battered headland is alive with a charged menace. The anticipation is broken by a low blast. The blare of a ram's horn or the keen of an unknown animal, the sound scurls over the encircling cliffs. A shadow appears at the slim parting in the cave walls, long gloved fingers extending and emerging to take hold of the rock before the towering shape appears. He is attired in the dark, loaded skins of a sea creature, a dreadful hooded face beneath coiled horns, an uneasy commingling of human and animal. It is the man from the masquerade, Max's tormentor, and now my own. He strides toward me in his patchwork armor of ambergris and black leather, and whether to call him man or beast is of little consequence. I decide he is either a thing that was once a man, or perhaps a creature in the process of radical evolution, soon to become something untended by Mother Nature herself. I think to leap from the pillar, only to find that my own hands are bound behind my back. I am also naked as well, and aside from the absence of a blindfold, I could be any one of them, another bound effigy, set out upon a rock as if in sacrifice to Poseidon himself. His narrow yellow eyes focus upon me, and I look away, down at the spot between my feet, where I would stare when I was a child, and my mother would berate me, furious at whatever, at whatever fresh shame I had brought to her doorstep. The creature nears, calcified feet clopping like hooves over the wet stone, the snap and crunch of shells and rocks and mermaids' purses as he rears up and leaps with ease to the adjacent perch. He lands with a hard thud of bone upon rock and takes hold of one of the frozen women by the waist. Only this woman stiffens, resisting his grasp as he pulls her closer. Her feeble effort to squirm free causes him to smile a flicker of the cruelest face of humanity in his delight. His hands, which I had thought sheathed in a shiny black material, are in fact formed this way, fingers hooked like deadly talons. 
he slides one of them down her stomach, through her dark thatch of pubic hair, and between her bare thighs. My eyes return to her face, and I know this woman. It is Maxa herself. She is fixed in a paralyzing rictus, her anguished expression familiar from the guignol. Release her at once, I command, my voice weak and unassuming. His smile widens at my lackluster demand. Why would I do such a thing? She is luxuriant with feeling, is she not? As am I, he says, the taut animal skin at his crotch straining as he grows engorged. She chose to join me, to become a part of greater things. Surrender to a sensuousness realm that overflows with a dark voluptuousness, the same way you have given yourself to me. I chose no such thing, I say, with as much volume as I can muster. And if Maxa made any sort of pact with you, I can assure you that she was unaware of the terms. I chafe against that which binds me, but my ties fail to loosen. What are you? I ask. Are you man or demon? Are you both? What am I to make of you? He smiles once more and my blood runs cold, naked skin turning to ice in the suddenly frigid wind. I am many things, he says, many things to many people. He leaps across our divide and lands beside me with a hard thud that shakes the stone beneath my feet, the smell of his animal musk commingling with that of the sea, the same intoxicating admixture that captivated me earlier at the masquerade. It is a continuation of the very same exchange of pleasure and pain, a danse macabre performed as a pas de deux. He can find me anywhere, at any time that he desires, and this dance will continue as long as he wills the music to play. What is it that you want? I whisper. Tell me, and it shall be yours. Only let Maxa free, I beg of you. You know what it is I want. His hand caresses my breast, my skin prickling as he presses himself against me. Slick, wet fingers travel down my body to my pelvis until he finds the moistness between my legs. I want the light inside of you, sweet Anais, as I once craved the light inside them. And he sweeps a hand toward the cliffs and the statues dotting the shoreline, all the many bodies forever suspended in their disturbing tableau. You sought this very same annihilation, he continues, his words a menacing thrum. The sky darkens with clouds, voice accentuated by a heavy rumble of thunder as a storm rapidly approaches from the sea. Like them, you came to me seeking oblivion. And now that you have tasted it, there is no turning back, for oblivion has already tasted you. He hunches down, his mouth traveling my skin, 
and my gaze drops to the ground. There upon the sand lies a scattering of shards, and it is only once my eyes focus that I recognize them as the fragments of a sculpture, the shattered remnants of one of the women. The pieces are large enough that I'm able to put them together in my mind and glimpse the woman that they once embodied, her face long and equine, like that of a Modigliani. I stumble and rear back, and in doing so, I face the cave mouth, where the woman with the Modigliani face watches from the darkness. She raises a finger to her lips, her wrist cuffed by torn cloth, though her binds are severed. Another figure hovers in the shadows behind her, an older woman, stooped and emaciated. What I can grasp of this older woman is weathered and formidable, hair a tangle of matted knots, her stick-like limbs corded with muscle and adorned with an array of beaded bracelets of turquoise and amber and gold. She holds a finger to her lips as well, imploring my silence, lest their presence be given away. I shift my body toward Maxa. Her blindfold is gone now, and she raises her head high, cheeks glimmering in the overcast light. Her once obscured eyes are sewn shut, wisps of silver thread at her temples. Her jaw drops open and continues to lower, unhinging to an inhuman length so that her mouth becomes its own vast cave. As I watch, she emits a savage cry of terror. I awaken in my bed, a scream upon my lips. Shuddering and cold, I place my hand upon Hugo's back, his bare shoulders still shimmering with glitter from the masquerade. I want to wake him so that he can hold me and comfort me, tell me that my terrifying encounter was only a dream. Only a dream, a dream, but not a dream alone. A dream also tells the truth, the same way fiction tells the truth, once it is distilled from reality. The same way I used this diary and my emotions and experiences as the foundation for my stories. Indeed, there no longer seems to be a difference between dream and reality, between fiction and real life, as the barriers between realms are shattered one after the next. Soon, the sun will rise over Louvciennes, over the city of Paris proper, the whole of the continent and the waking world as well. Come morning, I must have a fresh resolve, must make myself into a new form of creature. This new being must be capable of resisting the embrace of my would-be tormentor, of vanquishing this brute birthed out of a vast and wine-dark sea, lest I succumb to the unknowable depths of his nightmare realm. And if I write this new resolve into being, it becomes a kind of truth itself. In order to transform my very life, the diary must turn grimoire. I must become my own sorceress at last. I cling tighter to Hugo, who can do nothing to help me whatsoever. Now, only I can save myself.
Thank you. Unmute me. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You, the audience will be applauding now and yeah. throwing tables over. Oh, my God. Virtual, virtual, virtual applause. I'll take them. Yeah. Cheers. Really good. So don't forget, um, uh, Steve Berman said that you can get the book at a 55% discount um, from – I guess ordering through his site, his website, I lost the uh, the notice. Where did that go? Steve, can you mention? Oh, can you mention it again? Anyway, yeah, oh, Steve, if, you wanna, if you want to put up the URL, I could put it up for a fifty-five percent discount on Robert's book. You um, use coupon code fifty-five percent. So I guess you go to the left let they press website. I'm guessing. I'm guessing too. Or maybe, <clears throat> maybe Steve will tell us. So the. Yes, the, the everyone's uh, snapping and clapping together. So terrific! Yes, so that's great. So um, so we're gonna have take a little. Oops, I guess I should look up. We're gonna take a break for about five minutes, so you can replenish your drinks and tip the bar, and uh, use the restroom and anything you want. So okay, Teresa says I've been waiting to hear this red live since last year. Cool. And everyone's wahooing and clapping and applause. So that's great. So we'll see you and we're going to take a break. Uh, Matt, are you going to put our break thing? There we go. Are you put the candle on or not? <laughs> yes, I'll put the candle. I'll put the candle on. All right. I'm going to mute everybody. <laughs>
in the pandas. Hello, hi. Hello, hi. <clears throat> so we're back here? Yeah, we're back. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right, and we're on? <laughs> we're on. Oh, okay, hello everybody. <clears throat> um, I'm here to introduce Daniel Brown, who is the author of the short story collection, The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales. Also, The Wish Mechanics, Stories of the Strange and Fantastic, and the Dim Shores Press chapbook, Yeti Tiger Dragon. His third collection, Underworld Dreams, is forthcoming from Lethe Press in 2020. The Serpent's Shadow, his first novel, was released from um, by Cemetery Dance eBooks in 2019. Um, he is also the editor of the Spirits Unwrapped Anthology from Lethe Press. Please welcome Daniel Brown. Hey, hello everyone. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Ellen, Robert, KGB Bar, everyone at Cemetery Dance, and everyone who tuned in. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my book, The Serpent Shadow, from Cemetery Dance. Uh, it's out as an ebook only. Um, one of the things about the book is it's one of those stories that appears to be and is almost structured like a familiar horror story or setup, much in the way something like It Follows appears to be a standard teen stalker movie, but it's something very different. Uh, the book starts off like one of those kids on the jungle on vacation gone wrong kind of tales, but it goes to a very different and um, a much de uh, deeper place. The story is set in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula in 1986 at the dawn of the resort era. It was a very different time before cell phones, before the computer boom, and the Yucatan up until the 1970s had been a lawless and mostly undeveloped area, uh, in, in a way, uh, comparisons to the wild, wild west era. So as outsiders and development comes, the Mexicans and the Mayans are engaged in a quiet war for the future of what's going to become of the area. Uh, the story begins during a Christmas time vacation boom, where a killer known as the White Lady has disrupted the status quo with the string of vacation time murders. And there are those who think she is Santa Muerte, Saint Death from local folklore. Our main characters are Anne Marie and David, two young teenage wannabe lovers who are experiencing their first tastes of freedom and the world around them uh, outside the bounds of the lives they knew. Anne-Marie is uh, Guatemalan, but she was raised in New York since she was an infant. David and Anne-Marie are having their first uh, moments together alone outside in the jungle, exploring the archaeology uh, with a Mayan man whose name is Ramon and who claims to be a guide. The jungle and the sites are supposed to be abandoned, but they find people there worshiping and assembling into human chains along paths, which are white bricked roads called Sock Bay. These human chains are part of the supernatural uh, part of the story that develops. And the section I'm going to read right now picks up where Ramon and everything takes the first big turn for the strange. Person after person emerged from the jungle. They moved along the Sock Bay in single file, stepping in unison until the first person in line, one of the young women I recognized from the trail, reached the foot of the pyramid and stopped. 
About a dozen people were in front of Ramon. He looked ridiculous with all that green paint slathered on his face and back and chest and in that feather headdress. He shouted something in Mayan and the young woman began to climb. The line followed her up the steps. People kept filing out one by one, feeding the procession. I had no idea how far it stretched. Look at everyone, Anne-Marie said. Ramon said there were 40 or 50 families living around here, I said. I think there are more people here than that. Come on, let's just split, I said. We can go down the other side. Why would we want to do that? Anne-Marie said. They're sharing this with us. We should be honored. If you're going to bail, just go ahead. That stung. She was fascinated by their ceremony, and my first reaction was to run. I took her hand and squeezed it. This was my last chance to play it safe. I knew this was danger. Scared as I was, I did want to see. To see with her. Uh, I was just, you know, looking out for you. I don't need looking out for, she said. We watched a line of people move up the pyramid. After a few minutes, the young woman from the trail reached the final step. She climbed onto the pyramid top, walked past us to the temple, and disappeared inside without acknowledging us. Six or seven people followed exactly the same way. The next person, another young woman, followed and stopped right outside the temple. The next stopped an arm's length from her. Ramon was the next up. Green paint from his face was in his stringy hair and headdress. With a smile and a nod, he directed us to stand in the line. Anne-Marie complied and moved to an arm's length away from the last person. They had left room for me. Ramon nodded, directing me to stand next to her. I didn't move. Anne-Marie looked at me with unabashed confusion. I didn't want to see her expression turn to disappointment, so I shuffled into line next to her. Satisfied, Ramon strode to the temple opening and disappeared inside, and he called out in Mayan from inside the temple. Everyone responded by joining hands. The woman just outside the temple held the hand of the person standing just inside. Anne-Marie was hand in hand with the Mayan girl next to her. She held her other hand out to me. A Mayan guy was next to me, his arm outstretched and his hand open. His other hand grasped the hand of the girl on the step below him. The chain of people continued down the pyramid, across the Sock Bay and into the jungle. Come on, what are you waiting for? Anne-Marie said. I had a feeling that something was about to happen. That nagging feeling that I had forgotten something was back, spreading uneasiness through my bones. I just knew that if I joined hands with everyone, I was going to be a part of whatever it was. And I yearned for it. As strange as it was, I yearned to be a part. I put my right hand in the hand of the guy on the step. His hand was strong, was no stranger to hard work. He held on to me as if he were gripping an important tool, and he kept adjusting his grip as if he were afraid he might accidentally lose hold. Then I reached for Anne-Marie's hand with my left. Her fingers closed around mine, and a chill of excitement ran through me. I stood there in the line, not knowing what to do with myself, like during one of those moments of silence at an assembly back in high school, or a silent prayer in temple. 
I was never able to focus on what I was told to or to pray. My mind would always wander and run wild like it was doing now. I thought of how the guy's hand sort of felt like dad's and how much it meant to dad bringing us on vacation. I thought of Anne Marie standing outside the club last night of her leg against mine when we were sitting outside the room at the hotel. I watched the smile on her face slowly growing as she watched me. I thought of how good it felt to be close to her, how good her skin felt. I wanted to feel her chest against mine and her arms wrapped around me. She blushed and a big smile erupted on her face. I smiled too and a, a laugh escaped me. She attempted to chastise me with a stern look, but the blush never left her face. I looked to the sky and listened to the breeze rustle the treetops to the insects and the birds and the sound of the people on the stairs shuffling in place. I had been sure something was going to happen when we all linked hands, but nothing had happened. A little pop resounded from inside the temple, barely audible above the everyday noises. I felt more than heard it. I thought someone had opened champagne or something vacuum sealed. I listened for it again and heard a faint hiss like air escaping a tire. Then Ramon screamed. The guy holding my hand squeezed tight. The chain of people tugged and we all lurched toward the rectangular door. Ramon yelled. A horrible smile spread on the face of the woman next to Anne Marie. My arm spasmed. I felt a shock in my right hand. The jolt shot through me and out my left hand. As quickly as it had come, the sensation had gone. I stood there trying to recall the feeling in my body, but only an echo remained. I wondered if I had really felt anything other than Charlie Horse from standing with my arms up. The hiss grew louder, then abruptly stopped. Ramon let out a tortured cry, all trace of his excitement gone. The woman standing just outside the temple stumbled backward and fell, pulling the person inside down with her. The woman next to her tried to keep a hold in her hand, but she fell too, and their hands came apart. The line shifted. Everyone lost their handholds. Ramon stepped outside the entrance, his form and flailing arms a green blur, only visible for a flash before he stumbled back into the dark. All along the chain, people were letting go of each other and breaking their silence. The sound of their tense conversations joined the din of the jungle. Ramon stumbled out of the temple again. A big green snake had its jaws clamped over the bottom of his face and his neck. Its long body floated in the air next to him in defiance of gravity. It looked like one of those tree boas, but all grown up and as thick as my leg. Ramon swatted at it and stumbled in circles. Feathered wings unfolded from the snake's back with a whoosh. They were red, red as Ramon's headdress. With each undulation of the snake's body, the wings grew a little larger, yellow. Then blue feathers appeared among the red as they opened. One summer, Dad showed me a butterfly crawl out of a cocoon and pump blood into its new wings. This was like that, only it was happening much faster. People were screaming. In the corner of my eye, I saw Anne Marie crawling into the temple. I knew something horrible was happening, but I couldn't look away. The way the snake moved, 
the way its body cut the air was of profound importance that was eclipsing all other thoughts. Looking at it filled me with calm. Despite the erupting chaos, all I wanted to do was watch its green scales catch the sunlight. The two women who had fallen crawled to their knees and bowed their heads in prayer. Another woman spun with Ramon, ignoring his muffled cries as she tried to dance with him. The snake whipped its body and knocked into her. She lost her balance and stumbled backwards over the edge of the pyramid. Ramon's hands found the snake's head and tried to pry it off his face. A rivulet of blood ran down his neck, a red-gray streak in the sweat and green paint. As he struggled to free himself, the snake's wings extended fully, the symmetrical arc of bright red and yellow and blue feathers began to vibrate, then became a grayish purple blur that buzzed and clicked like flying fish we had seen this morning. The snake rose higher, Ramon's feet lifted off the pyramid top. The whirs and clicks intensified as the snake struggled for altitude. Then it opened its mouth and let Ramon drop. He fell to his knees, clutched his face, and flailed his other arm blindly. The thing hovered above him with its head facing me. I didn't get the sense it was seeing me or could even see it all. Its eyes were solid black and struck me as something that belonged to a deep sea creature or something that lived in the dark. Ramon let out a sob and cried, Why? The snake lunged at him. He rolled to avoid it. It snapped at the space where he had been a second ago. Then it snapped at the air wildly. The inside of its mouth was black, unnaturally black. The black of space, I thought. The space between the stars. A loud hiss was coming from its open maw. Something about the horrible sound brought my wits back to me, and I backed up and lowered myself onto the first step of the pyramid. I wanted to run for cover, but I found I still could not look away. The snake flew in small circles above Ramon, gracefully moving moving through the air like a fish through water. Tendrils of black smoke trailed in its wake. The smoke was wafting from its body and floated sideways, not up like smoke should. The hiss grew louder. Patches of skin on the snake's back were turning black. It twirled and corkscrewed and rose higher. Black patches on its belly were crackling and bubbling. I thought it was burning, but there wasn't any fire only the black eating away at it and the thick smoke that lingered too long in the air. A long piece of skin starting at its head peeled away and fell off, exposing muscle and bone. The two women who had been praying sprung to their feet and tried to catch it. They leapt into the air, reaching for the snake, ignoring its lunges in their direction, but they only captured handfuls of emptiness. Skin fell off its head and tail and back but it continued snapping and lunging, even though its bones and half its skull were exposed. With a mighty heave, it thrust itself skyward, but its buzzing wings went still and it stopped rising. Feathers crumbled to dust. Black patches spread over the last bits of green scales. It jerked and rolled as it fell, a withered black shape against the sky. Then it was only black dust raining down on the pyramid coating Ramon and the worshippers 
and me. I carefully stood and approached the temple uh, to find Anne-Marie. Ramon looked up at me as I passed him. His face was marred with gashes. Tears and blood were running down his face. I'd never seen such a deflated, defeated look before in my entire life. The man was weeping. Everything about him screamed confusion and pain. I felt eyes on me. Anne-Marie was standing in the rectangular opening to the temple, watching, cool as could be, Ramon's loose-leaf binder tucked in the crook of her arm. The two Mayan women were looking past Ramon and I to her. Framed in the square doorway, she looked magnificent and regal. She was just Anne-Marie in her hiking clothes, but she surveyed the chaos with such poise. Standing there like that, it wasn't hard to imagine her as an image from one of those Stella come to life. I don't know what went wrong, Ramon said in between deep heaving sobs. I did everything right. The woman looked to him, then back to Anne-Marie, their eyes open wide and fixed on her. Santa Muerte te llama, Anne-Marie whispered. Saint Death calls you. She had spoken so softly, so quickly, I wondered if she had even said it at all. The two women grabbed Ramon by the arms and began to drag him. It was such an act of violence, I felt a pang in my stomach. Without any compassion, they towed him to the other side of the pyramid and disappeared over the edge. Anne-Marie came to me and brushed black dust off my face. Good look for you, she said. Seriously? I asked. Holy shit, what the hell was all that? Come on, let's get out of here, she said. And uh, we'll break it right there. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. So you can order, so I assume people can get your book from Amazon and from Cemetery Dance directly or what? Uh, I think it's uh, it's available as a Kindle for uh, ninety nine cents on Amazon. That's good. Okay. Yeah, it's the best place. I think you. I don't think you can get it from Cemetery Dance site, but some other online booksellers. But the best place and the cheapest place right now would be, as Ellen said, uh, through Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Sounds yeah, good. There's the link down there. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um. Well, thank you both for those uh, amazing readings. Um. So uh, we're going to do something that we don't actually do at the, at the actual bar, KGB bar. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yes. <laughs> Got, I have my matches here, ready. <laughs> but I keep dropping. I guess I've had too much to drink. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, ask you guys some questions. And then after that, I think we'll open it up to, uh, to the live chat and see if anyone else has any questions. Um, so I thought I thought uh, we'd start with Robert. Uh, Robert, um, can you can you tell us how you came to write about um, Anais Nin and and what is your history with her and and what is it about her that interested you? Uh, sure. Um, the 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 simple answer is that um, uh, is that I saw the movie Henry and June that I uh, that I mentioned earlier when I was. Uh, 
uh, setting up that uh, excerpt. Uh, it came out in 1990. It, it has a the claim claim to fame of being the very first movie ever with an NC-17 rating. They kind of had to make a new rating for this movie because it wasn't rated X, but they felt that it was not appropriate for people under 17. I was under 17 and I loved it. And it, it had <laughs> um, really uh, kind of profound effect on me. Um, it is a lot of, you know, it's about a woman, it's actually about a woman who, there's a lot about Ani Eastman that is very different than me. She she was um, this uh, kind of, um, uh, she was a banker's wife and was and was torn between a life of bohemianism and um, creativity and artistry and drawn to all of these amazing artists. And she is a kind of zealot-like figure in that sense that she knew so many people like uh, Henry Miller and Artaud and um, just an endless amount of um, creative people over her whole life. She, she knew virtually everyone, Kenneth Anger, um, all, all people, all, all sorts of fields. Um, but but she always had this tension of um, whether to to live her life uh, in as one of stability or or to take the leap in, in, into the unknown. And I think that's something that, that any anyone uh, certainly a, any young artist can kind of relate to, and I certainly did. But beyond that, she was someone who was very much exploring her sexuality, and as a fifteen-year-old. Uh, that was certainly something that I was doing as well. So to see this movie in a movie theater um, that was about um, uh, queer people uh, and was inclusive in that sense was a real, real revelation, revelation for me. And um, for young, the younger folk that may be watching, that wasn't so common back then whatsoever. Um, beyond that, um, I. I just have always really liked her writing a lot. And um, she's she's not a genre writer, she, but she writes about sexuality in a way that makes it feel like it, it has a sort of frisson of um, uh, electrical energy that reminds me of a lot of the best genre fiction where it's it's not, it's, it's, it's a heightened reality, if you will. And that was something else that I really responded to. I'm just, a, I'm, I'm a big fan. And I obviously did a lot of research beyond just being a fan for a long time to, to do this novella. And I came out the other side even more of a fan. So. Okay, cool. Uh, why, did, why did you choose to place an author not usually associated with fantasy or horror in a genre piece? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, it's funny because, so Anis Nin, and I sort of alluded to the Grand Guignol Theater before, which uh, uh, was a, a theater that would sort of like, their goal was to was to titillate through either sex or horror. Uh, and what they used to do is, um, is, is have these little one acts that where they would go back and forth, like 10 to 15 minute pieces, and they would go back and forth. They, and it was called a, a which was means a hot and cold shower. So they go hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And, and it would produce a really powerful effect on the audience where they would be sort of like drawn in and then repulsed and drawn in and then repulsed. And I kind of wanted to create that, that effect through the novella. 
Um, Anis Nin was actually a regular patron of the Grand Guignol and her first night out with June Miller, Henry Miller's wife, who she was devastatingly attracted to, was actually at the Grand Guignol Theater. So I think that was probably the first spark of putting her in that setting. And of course, I'm a writer of dark fiction. Um, so it was kind of a gimme that I would set something in that milieu. Um, but uh, I, I love, I, I, it's uh, Jeff Ford wrote like a great story uh, about um, Emily Dickinson. Oh yes, I love that one. Um, that was also kind of like a, a a touchstone. I just, I love when people, I love when people, you know, I wanted Ani's Nin people to learn to like her through this piece and her mm -hmm. people to learn to like Ani's Nin. Right. Um, and I love when people do that. And it's all about, you know, it's funny because you mentioned the origin of KGB and mm -hmm. how, it, mm -hmm. how it's, that's just what it's all about. It's about bringing people together who might be from disparate areas and learning to appreciate what other people do and, you know, co-mingling. So that, that, that's what I was going for. That's awesome. Um, so this is your first novella, is that right? Yeah, very first. Yeah, can you tell us about your experience at writing at this length and uh, why did you choose this length for this particular project? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I, I've, I've I, I, I often heard, and this is certainly something that Ellen could speak to, um, that um, novellas are, are a great, uh, length for horror. And obviously Ellen's like short story queen. I get that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, 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 I for a, a, a dark piece um, where it's a short story can be kind of like a gut punch and then a novel, horror novels are hard. Um, it's hard to keep that, you know, it's a, it's a lot of heavy lifting because horror is definitely a genre that, that more than some might um, you know, you're, there's, you're always having the thing where like, why don't they just leave the house <laughs> in no. horror? Like, why don't they just leave? <laughs> you know, so you have to do a lot of heavy lifting to kind of get people out of that mindset. So in this, I, I wanted to try to tackle a, a horror or dark fantasy novella. I sort of always sort of straddle those two lines. Um, also because I admire so many writers who work in that, in that mode at that length. Like, uh, you know, I mean, so, you know, people like Elizabeth Hand and uh, Olivia Llewellyn and John Langan and Laird Barron and Caitlin Kiernan. And, you know, I, there's so many people who are doing such great work at that length. So I kind of wanted to try it. Yeah. Um, but for this particular piece, I felt that to do, uh, uh, to do Anais's voice and to do it in the style of her diary would be gimmicky at a short length and would grow old at a longer length. So that's for this particular piece, why I chose that, that, uh, you know, it's 35,000 words. It's pushing long, but um, that was, a, I, I loved working at this length. I wish there were, you know, more opportunities to put novellas out there. And I think there's just gonna be more, obviously tour.com is leading the way, but like, yeah. uh, you know, I just think like, there's everything about our culture is pointing to the novella. It's a great length. Yeah, yeah. I, I love like this little short read that you could read in maybe one or two sittings, you know, and yeah, it's really great. Absolutely. Thank thank you, Robert. Um, we're going to turn over, turn over to Daniel. Um, uh, Daniel, um, I have a question, a couple of questions for you. So 
tell me a little bit, how can structure in general affect the genre classification of a story? Uh, so like The Serpent's Shadow has an unexpected ending point. Um, how do you think the structure of the book pushes it closer or farther away of what a reader might think of as a horror story? Um, for me, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote the, the book, not knowing, um, not really knowing where the, the, the length was going to, um, uh, come out, but I had a, I had a certain ending point in mind and the, the ending that I had originally written and originally thought of is the ending that now appears in the book. But during the process, I second guessed myself, like for, for whatever reason, I just didn't, uh, I didn't think it was a good enough ending or I didn't think it worked. And at that was the time I was working with my editor, Norman Prentice, who, you know, after a, a couple of rewrites, he really gave me the confidence and the courage and, and also the education into heart. He said, no, th this is the ending. So it, it got me from, this was quite a few years ago already. So it got me thinking and just researching. I hadn't read or wasn't really versed in horror. So I just was exploring, well, okay, well, what, what makes something like Robert said, oh, okay, I'm into dark, dark fantasy and horror. Like, I think a lot of these definitions are perhaps academic, as long as it's a good or an organic fit, but it did get me thinking, well, why, why is this one horror? So the, the ending point was, it's, it was a sort of a point in the story where the story, the, it reached, it reached or someone reaches a decision and it's not necessarily an expected decision. And it's a point where the story still goes on. And it's a kind of ending that I really like. And um, in my research, which consisted pleasurably of reading a lot of uh, horror stories that had come before, I realized that that is, if not a common ending, it was an ending that I was seeing uniquely to horror stories, which made me think why my editor uh, gave me the, you know, the, the confidence and the vote to end it there. And also, you know, began, began a lot of my education about and thinking, critical thinking about structure and how structure could fit with um, genre. And this is just my two cents. I don't know if any of this is a rule or true or false, you know, just my one writer's observation. Sure, sure. So um, I'm wondering if you could tell us like how the serpent shadow plays with or subverts common genre fiction tropes and maybe if you had this in mind when you were writing the story? Um, I didn't have that in mind when I was writing the story, but I do, uh, for me, the process of writing it was, was an organic flow, which is very different than the way I, I normally write. When I write short stories, which was my, my most common form, I do think a lot about structure and I do, I do think a lot about tropes, but um, I think it just, once I wrote what I wanted to see, I think a lot of, um, um, I like stories where tropes are presented, but also played with, subverted, um, examined that way. Like uh, a go-to, a film that I always talk about is the film It Follows. Like on the surface, it looks like a teen slasher movie. Okay, it's kids and they're being pursued by a slasher. There are some rules may or may not be supernatural. And I think The Serpent Shadow is operating in some of the same ways in that um, 
the story on first glance does appear to be something that's becoming more and more common, like the sort of vacation horror or tropic horror. Like there are kids and they're on vacation and they mess with something or something happens. And But that's the point where my book um, plays with the tropes and it, it, it departs from there. So I like stories where you can you're still you're still having a shape you're still having the familiar so i guess you, you can still entertain or you can still draw people in but once you have them in there the story goes in different places and you're freed up to you know examine different things about the stories of the characters and that, that's just something i i love to no end and I, I hope i achieve that in the book that's cool it's cool so um a little bit of, of synchronicity i think um mo most of the work uh that you've published are, are short stories but this is your first longer work kind of like robert um how, how does the longer format differ uh you know in the process than than writing short stories um for me it um it just allowed me to tell a story um to add the element of time. And I think a lot of, I, I went back and, you know, looking at a lot of my short stories take place, um, most of them take place in pretty compact um, instances of time. And I think, cause I think I find it really hard within the confines. I mean, I love the, I love the, I love the short story. I love the form, but yeah, I, I feel um, my short stories are for me, the way I know how to write them, they have to be very, very focused. So most of my short stories um, don't have the luxury or I haven't quite figured out how to tell stories over larger periods of time. So that's just like one, one luxury, the no novel form uh, allowed me to, um, to tell a story that, um, to just play with that element. All right, that's, that's awesome. Um, so uh, now I think we're gonna open it up to, um, some uh, viewer questions. Uh, so um, there is a, a slight delay. Um, so we're live streaming this and then you guys are seeing it. I think they said it could be up to 30 seconds. So if you will, if you guys have any questions, we'll, we'll, I'll try to pick uh, some interesting ones to ask. And you can ask any of us, you could ask, you know, Robert, Daniel, Ellen, or myself, and, and uh, we'd be happy to answer them. Um, but, uh, before, so we'll give everyone a couple moments to, uh, to, uh, catch up to us. So, um, Daniel and Robert, what did, what did you guys think of, uh, this format? How was it for you? Uh, so far so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I have a, I have a question or comment for Robert, if that's allowed. Sure. Oh, yeah, okay. I, Robert, I, I mean, I loved, um, I loved what you said about how um, Anais Neen's um, work um, uh, gives gives almost like a heightened sense of reality. And I think it just, it put it put to word something that I observed, what I love about um, when I see a piece of non-speculative fiction and sometimes, yeah, the writing or the way that they are approaching an element, it feels like, it feels like I'm like, is this, is this gonna turn supernatural? Cause yeah, the, there's such a heightened state to it. I thought that was just a really, um, a great observation, great way you put it. Um, how did you approach that? How did you approach um, that on a prose level when writing um, the book, Robert? Um, my what probably my uh, you know obviously my my literary touchstone in this 
piece was Anais Nin. She has um, her, so her erotica, she's written a lot of, a lot of erotica. She used to write it for kind of like a penny a word for a mysterious benefactor who um, was unknown. Um, I believe it was actually Henry Miller who got her the gig. He was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And she, so she started doing it and she wasn't the only one. There was a lawyer who was like an, a go-between between the benefactor and um, and Anais, but it's it's speculated that the bet that the lawyer was the one who was getting her to write this stuff. Mm. Um, and um, so she so she was writing these erotic pieces, um, very some of which are very strange and actually very dark, which is not something that is necessarily associated with her. Um, she was basically writing writing dark fiction. So I took the um, that kind of uh, energy from the uh, short erotic vignettes that she would do and applied it to trying to create a secret diary, uh, kind of like a diary so shocking that it, she, it could never be shown to the world because it, it was so, um, uh, so supernaturally tinged that it, she sort of squat, you know, squared it away. Um, so I kind of tried to combine those two sides of her, the fiction writer and the diarist, into this piece. Matt, did you see there are a few questions up there? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think I can put them up here. Uh, Julia Rust asks, question for Robert from David Surface. Nice, nice job of capturing Anais Nin's voice. Was there a particular point in the writing where you could feel her voice becoming your own? Um, that's a great question. Um, it, you know, it, these these kind of things are, you know, when you try to write in someone else's voice, some people are really, really, uh, really good at it in general. Um, I don't know. I, I certainly don't feel comfortable speaking to whether I'm good at it or not. But I, I did notice that, that you know, uh, I had to put aside my fear of failure to try to step up to the plate and create something in the voice of someone so iconic. Um, certainly as a man, um, I, I was sort of I, as a little dumbstruck that no one had done this before uh, and had, no one had written kind of, a, a piece in her voice before that I could find. And believe me, I looked. Um, but I almost feel like maybe people were too, it was because people were too afraid of doing that. So I kind of had to put that fear aside because it was the pressure of it was too daunting. So I just read so much of her work. And I think that when you steep yourself in a person's work like that, you can kind of take it on a little bit as a, a, uh, a kind of um, creative amanuensis where you're, where you're working their, uh, where, where you're a channel for their vision. And I just kind of imagined what it would be like for her to write a kind a piece closer to what I write, um, and and that was pretty much my process. I hope I hope I got it right. Um, <laughs> so I can't really speak to speak to that, but um, I'm pretty proud of how it came out from my own standards. Uh, Cliff Winning asked, um, "You both used some great surreal imagery. My question: Did the images occur first, or did they arise organically from writing these scenes, or dot dot dot?" Uh, Daniel, you want to take that one? Um, yeah, no, normally in my writing process, um, I'm going to say both. Like normally I will start with an image. I, I, I usually start with um, 
um, setting. So I can't remember when, but once upon a time, long, long ago, there was always this image. Um, I had visited some of those places as a boy and I had seen those sake and no one really knows what they're for. And just like for a long time, I just had a boyish imagination of hundreds and thousands of people linking hands. And so on the one hand, that was like the organic part of it. And then the other, the other side of it, the craft side is, well, once you've committed that there's going to be dramatic structure around this idea, then, it, you know, then it becomes a much more um, craft and working process to make it fit in the dramatic structure of the story. Robert, what's your take on that question? Um, I'm really glad this question was asked because I read um, a, what is ostensibly a dream sequence. And there's a sort of famous truism in writing, which is tell a, tell a dream, lose a reader. And it's been, it was attributed to Henry James. I don't think he's the one that said mm. it. Um, but but um, that isn't true in horror and um, horror adjacent fields. And that's because what that genre does is much like we were saying, more real than real. Dreams and horror um, are a unique way to pass information along where you're actually getting the truth of what a situation is. Whereas in, in you know more realist fiction, it's just dreams like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. But in horror, no, you're actually in a place where you're learning what the real truth is. Um, and some of my favorite practitioners of that are definitely Caitlin Kiernan um, and, and Laird Barron. They're always sort of my two like dream sequence touchstones. Um, so for me, I, you know, this piece that I read, um, this excerpt is, um, had a lot of dream imagery in it, but I, I absolutely wanted to convey that, that this was, this was the real, this was the real truth of what, what was going on. This was the, this, this, this figure's real nightmare realm. Um, and I, that's something I just love about, about horror. I have to admit that I usually hate dream sequences, not in horror necessarily, but in general. When yeah, a lot of people do. Usually, I mean, Lucia Shepard wrote one once, and I said, "Why is this in here? It's like three pages. It doesn't tell me anything about the character, or what's, or doesn't do anything with the, the the plot." And so, I mean, it depends. You have to be careful. Even in horror, you have to be careful. With dream sequences, sure, and don't overuse them. But yeah, in this case, it great. Did did he cut did he cut the dream sequence? Yeah, I made him. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if he put it back when he did a collection, but I said you know, it's not going in without publishing. So, you know, he no, he listened to me. He's getting paid by me. <laughs> Smart man. Carrie <laughs> Laban he's a lucky man. Carrie Laban asks us question for both authors. I'd love to hear more about the research process for these stories. Uh yeah, uh, Daniel, want to take that one? Um, I'm lucky enough that um, I didn't have to do any research for it. I, I guess I did do research that a lot of um, it just came from my experiences. I had traveled to the Yucatan as um, a, a young teenager and you know, I'd spent a, a significant amount of trips there. Um, interestingly enough, right around just, just a little bit after um, you know, the period of time when uh, Tiptree had been writing um, their stories the, that were sit there, the um, tales of Quintana Roo. So it was a time when literally 
one year, you know, I had been, in, I had been in this remarkable place and the next year would come back and literally see the bulldozers clear cutting it. So, you know, I felt, you know, like it wasn't a, um, development was a literal, it wasn't a, uh, uh, you know, existential thing. It was a literal thing. So I'd always carried with me wanting to somehow write, write a story about, um, you know, about development and about the um, uh, both sides of it. So I guess, yeah, to answer to stay on to stay on the question, it was just things that I had, I had drawn from, from from my personal experiences. So I didn't have to do uh, what people th think of it as as research. Robert? Uh, so I, I, I talked earlier about steeping myself in her writing. Um, but one thing, the one thing that I got to do for this project that was really special was I uh, got to visit her archives uh, at UCLA and hold all her diaries and her personal material, the actual wow. volumes themselves. And what a lot of people don't know about Anise, and she was uh, French Cuban, but um, she wrote in English and she, she lived in America for a very long time, certainly for basically like you know, the, the second half of her life, but even earlier, um, my, my novella took place in 1933 when she obviously was in Paris, but she was writing in English then. Um, so I could actually read it. Uh, all, I only took high school French and barely remember it. But um, so to hold all those things was just extraordinary. I kind of couldn't believe that, you know, I had, I just, you know, I told them what I was working on and if I could come in and do it. And, you know, it's, it was, it was, it was, it, I was just gobsmacked um, to the point where it was like, I was like, you know, the, the, the diaries are like flaking. And I was like, um, oh my God, I have to like keep myself from like breaking a piece off and eating it. <laughs> like <laughs> like Francis Dollarhide in Red Dragon where he eats the painting. I think you will not eat part of Anis Nin's diary. <laughs> and I didn't, I did not eat part of her diary. Thank you. That that we that only Matt can I think Matt you can respond in the live comments. We can't post on the live comments. I can see them, but we can't actually respond except by talking. So just so you know. Um, well, then you can just answer orally, right? <laughs> I mean, well, no. So people making comments are not necessarily um, asking. Yeah, questions. I mean, we'll 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 get to, we'll get to uh, everyone. Hopefully, we'll we'll try to get to everyone. No, 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 you're Point. People are saying you're looking at people it. People right? are saying a lot of a lot of things. Uh, John Palazzano asks, "This is great. My question would be: Have you ever had a story or book haunt you long after you've written it? Uh, either of you want to take that, Daniel? I don't really. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope so. I'd, I'd like that. Yeah. What do you think, Robert? Um. There's, I, I wrote a short story um, recently. I feel like it go, it, ha it happens, it ha for me, it happens the other way around. I'm haunted by something and then I write about it as a way to sort of exercise that. Um, so usually it's kind of a freeing thing and I don't, I can't think of anything that's happened the, that way where I write something and then it haunts me. It usually happens the other way around. Mm, good, good answer, good answer. Um. Sorry, I'm eating some plantains. Um, <laughs> Matt asks, asks, Matt S asks for anyone who has an answer, 
I've been away from science fiction and fantasy since 2013. Short fiction is my jam. What authors that have hit the scene in the past few years would you recommend writing short? And then he says, to clarify, who's writing short fiction that you'd recommend reading? I think that's a question that maybe Ellen should answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're talking about science fiction or fantasy or horror. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. more versant in horror than science fiction. So, Matt, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you want to know more about horror? Are you still there? <laughs> or Matt S. This is Matt S. asking. I know. Let's see if he um, responds. Well, Remember, there's a delay, so it may take him a few minutes. Right. To okay. Why don't you talk a little bit about some authors that you think uh, you would right. recommend? I mean, there's, some, there's amazing short fiction. Actually, the easiest way for you to find out is I, you don't have to read my anthologies necessarily, but if you even look at the summaries of the year, if, even if you just go to a bookstore or something, you can see the people I recommend. I mean, the stories I publish every year and the year's best are often new, new writers. I mean... This year, I think um, the book that will be coming out in the fall, I think I have like 11, at least 10 writers I've never published in a year's best before, and a few, couple, at least two I've never even heard of. I wasn't familiar with. So there are always new, really great horror writers coming into the field. And by looking at these best of the year books, that's actually the easiest way to discover them, I think, in, a, in one, you know, lump. <laughs> you know, rather than me just shouting out names, I feel kind of weird. Yeah. Some people are here, like Olivia Llewellyn is here. Yeah, some people are actually uh, yeah, here that you'd recommend. Inna E asks, Daniel, you talked about working with an editor. How do you know when to trust someone's feedback? That's a good question. I'll actually, I, I you know, I would ask both authors tonight what they, how yeah. they would answer that. Well, I, I, I would like to, uh, if you, Matt, if you're comfortable answering that question, you, you know as well as anyone. Why don't, would you, why not, why not answer it? I would love to hear your your thoughts. Um, so, um, it, I, I think like when taking advice from an editor, it's the same thing as taking advice from a writer's group. It has to ring true to what you're trying to do with the story. Um, you know, there have been times when an editor has given me feedback and I'm like, oh my God, I completely disagree with this. This is crazy. I'm angry and I like, you know, flip a table or something. And then I go for a walk and I come back and I'm like, no, they were right. They were right. It was my, it was my ego. So, but like, basically is, is if it aligns with what you were trying to do, I think, I think that's fine. Um, generally like anything Ellen says, I trust. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of like when you're working with a, with a person, you, you learn to trust them based on their reputation uh, a lot of times, but it's, it's generally, you know, it's more of just an instinct of feeling that it, that it, it align. Like if it makes the story better, if you're like, Oh, you know what, that's a point of view I didn't think about. And that would actually improve what I'm trying to do. So yes. But it's also a back and forth. I mean, I yeah. don't think I usually make demands of my authors. I mean, if I'm working with someone on a story that I know I really like and want, um, I will make suggestions. Sometimes those suggestions are more pushy than other times when I think that it really is important to the story to do something different. Um, but it's a back and forth. I mean, it should be a back and forth process. If an author pu pushes back about something, we each need to persuade the other which is going to make the story better, what's going to make the story better. I mean, it's not my ego on the line. I'm, I think that's a danger with writers slash editors, editors who also write. I mean, they have to 
put their egos aside and put their writing style aside. I mean, I have known cases in the past where um, overbearing editors who are writers wanted to rewrite someone's work. And that's not your job as an editor. You have to put, you have to separate you. If you're doing, if you have two hats, you have to get one, you know, either I'm a writer now or I'm an editor now. You can't do the same thing at the same time. You can't write, rewrite someone's story. They have to rewrite it or they should be rewriting it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a skill too. Cause I, I see that in, uh, in our writers group that, um, you know, you have to kind of sense what the author is trying to do, not what you would do with the same idea. And then you have to, like figure out how you can best help them tell their story, not the story that you're going, that you would right. tell. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Matt, what you said, um, uh, ring rings true to me. No, no pun intended. I think, um, for, for me, it's like, yeah, when you have that, um, when you have that ring, like when I, when I received the advice from my editor, it just, it was like this internal confirmation, like, Oh, okay. It's, 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 uh, confirming, it's giving me courage to to do what was originally intended. So for so for this particular project, it was a no brainer. It was like a huge, it was a huge relief. Um, I haven't had. Um, I'm also feeling very lucky for you know the opportunity uh, to work with Netter. I haven't had that uh, very much at all. So I think um, you know uh, yeah. I think it's like to you know, be in touch if you if you have it's an, if it's an optional thing. Yeah, to be in touch. Um, with your instincts and even even you Matt, you you mentioned like oh flipping the table and getting mad i think strong reactions both ways even if like you know that it's right but even if you you feel very angry or if you feel resistance to it um sometimes you can explore that as well with some time that's always sound advice to to let go of one's ego and be like hey i have an opportunity to have to work with an editor what can i how can i examine that the total total you have to be true to your own voice too I yeah, mean, I, I, you have to be careful that that you're not losing your voice by being over-edited or yeah. shopped or whatever. I once had a story where an editor, a lot of my style is not to explain the supernatural. And I went back and forth. I had an editor once, um, it was very well intended, but wanted every instance where the supernatural was just like was putting in the explanation every, every, every time. And finally, you know, through the conversation, I actually had to be, a back and forth of explaining like hey i know you're you're trying to put the clarity in here but like this all this non-clarity is not intentional and that could be my fault at, you know as an early writer if the story the story has to succeed and it has to work you know um just on that particular experience there yeah yeah um let me see if there's any any uh latest questions um no questions I think that's that's it for the questions, at least. Uh, unless someone else has one. Unless someone else has a question, we'll we'll give another minute or two. Um, but uh, I just want to say, like you know, this this went better than I than I expected. Um, I uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's our first time live streaming, so I I mean, I thought there was going to be a hiccup. I mean, we had one little hiccup. Robert had some trouble connecting, but uh, we figured that out. You know. He put that. We can make Hollywood squares. And, you know, jokes, Brady yeah. bunch jokes or anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a story. How do we do that? Yeah. Um, no, it's just. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it, I think it, I think it went smoothly, and um, you know, uh, hopefully, we won't have to do this next month. 
Right. Uh, hopefully the situation will improve, but if it, if it doesn't, uh, then we will do this again. And, um, you know, hopefully you guys out there enjoyed it and, um, you know, maybe we'll, you can give us some feedback either, uh, in the, in the YouTube comments or on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, so yeah, our website is kgbfantasticfiction.org. And, uh, you know, you can subscribe to our mailing list there. We send out just a couple emails a month reminding you of the upcoming readings. And like I said, we have a podcast going back about six years. And no photographs this time. Sorry. There's I no took a couple of photos of the screen. I want to like send us, you know, selfies or something. Right? Um, oh, that's right. Linda's on the West Coast kind of, so she's drinking three hours earlier. Three hours earlier. Yeah, it's it's not even not even six o'clock, Linda. What are you doing? Uh, hey, it's you know you got to make your quarantini. <laughs> yes. Nice. Um. All right. So, any any final thoughts from from our our guests or Ellen or any of our uh, audience members? Now's your chance. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Robert. This is great. This is a lot of fun. Nice to see people I haven't seen Fran Luke and Eugene. Did Eugene go away? Anyway, it was really <laughs> lovely seeing people I haven't seen for a while, and new people too. Yeah. Thank you, Matt, Ellen, and Robert. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you guys so much. And thank you to everyone who came um, and stay safe, everyone. Yes, stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, yes, thank you. Thank you all for being here. We, uh, we assume we'll now be live streaming dinner. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. We're all going to the kitchen sink right now. You can put it now. We're not going. Um, yes. Uh, thank, thank you, everyone. This was, this was great. Um, a nice little break from, from uh, all the other Definitely. Um, all right. I think that's it. I think we're going to end it there. So, uh, yes, uh, kgbfantasticfiction.org. Uh, thank you, Robert Levy. Thank you, Daniel Brown. And thank you to everyone who watched. And don't forget uh, to try to tip the bar. Yes, and tip uh, KGB bar on Venmo if you can. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye. 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 <laughs>